You are listening to Cheers to Justice, a true crime podcast where Austin and his guests talk disturbing true crime stories while drinking adult beverages. Austin and his guests are all above the age of 21. The stories told in this show could contain disturbing acts such as violence, murder, sexual assaults, and offenses against minors and animals. Some jokes may be made, but never at the victim's expense. Listener discretion is advised. Cheers! Hello everyone, and welcome back to Cheers to Justice. This is the show where we talk true crime and we share a drink together. Remember, if you want to check me out, Check me out on Instagram at Cheers to Justice, or you can email me at Cheers to Justice at gmail.com, where you can provide case suggestions. Or I'm going to add this if you have any true crime stories that personally that you went through or family went through or something you know, I may uh, talk about that. Maybe do some viewer or listener stories so if you want to do that cheers to justice at gmail.com so in the last episode we talked about eva duggan and the murder of andrew mathis from the 1920s so if you want to listen to that go back one episode i am your host austin oskaz kazmarek and today we have a special guest who Possibly could be our number one fan. One of my girlfriend Kayla's very good friends, we got Andrew. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for being It's not possible. I am the number one. (laughs) Well, I want to thank you so much for listening, and I want to thank you for coming onto the show and being a guest. Thank you. I can't wait. Um, so what I ask my, uh, first time guests is what kind of, um, true crime podcasts or TV shows do you listen to? Uh, I am a big, uh, that chapter on YouTube. I don't listen to, I don't really do anything but YouTube. Okay. Uh, I love that chapter. I love, uh, Jim Can't Swim. Okay. Um, and Explore With Us, I believe is the name of the other one. Those are my biggest ones. Jim Can't Swim is the best one, though. Okay. Very good. Very good. So you actually told me you're a little bit older. You're about 10 years older than Kayla and I. Um, and you actually have, you remember the days of when the Columbine High School massacre happened. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, that story? Yeah. So uh, I was in eighth grade at the time. And... Um uh, I believe it happened on a Tuesday, and um, that, and it was a big deal when it happened. It, obviously, nobody had ever seen anything like that before. Right. And uh, I remember uh, that following Monday uh, on on the school bus, um, we had gotten pulled over. Well, not necessarily the bus pulled over, uh, and we had a cop come on and talk to a student, and turned out that there was something, uh, back in the day, we had America Online. We didn't have all the right. fancy stuff. We had America Online. I think it was 2.0 at the time. And, <laughs> you mean uh, you didn't have Twitter or Facebook Yeah, no, and we all didn't that. have any of that. <laughs> and uh, somebody had put uh, some names on this post, and it didn't have anything to do with you know, violence or anything. Right. But, uh, it was misconstrued and reported to the police, and... Uh, we got pulled over that morning on the way to school, and it was, and it's always stuck with me. And just the reaction the next couple of days after Columbine had happened, I'd always started getting interested in that kind of stuff. And then uh, YouTube really opened it up because you could only get so much on cable TV back when I was younger. Right. Yeah. And now YouTube, I mean, you can you just can learn and hear about so many different cases, and. Uh, and it, so it's just interesting, and but but that's what brought me into listening to this kind of stuff and watching this kind of stuff was, I remember when Columbine happened and it was such a, such a big deal. Yeah, I mean, I, 
I, I don't, I mean, I'm only 28 and I don't remember Columbine because I think I was maybe four years old at the time. Yeah, that's interesting. And so the the list that this uh, person had, um, it, w- it had nothing to do with any quote unquote hit list or anything. No, no, it was for a wrestling event. Right, right. Okay. With a bunch of, you know, middle school kids, which is what we were. Yeah. That's, uh, and that that's, it sucks for the kid that uh, went through it, but I mean, you know, y- you gotta be so, you gotta be watching out for those kinds of things, especially nowadays with all these other um, mass shootings that have, have been going around, because it's all just, just so screwed up it it sucks and you know i hope we can find a way to to stop all these things you know all the red flags and and all that but i'm glad it, it never led to anything and you know i'm uh, again i'm glad to have you here with with me on my show um so that being said we are going to introduce our drink of choice this is from Noon Whistle Brewery, and Noon Whistle is from Lombard, Illinois, and we are drinking their Brewski, which is a traditional lager. So, Andrew, let's crack these bad boys open and give them a Sipski. It is not a Bud Light. Nope. Certainly is not, I'm but s- I'm such a sissy. <laughs> drink those, but this is actually pretty good. Yeah, I I like it. It's um, it it definitely has the lager taste. It definitely could be, it definitely could be like a domestic beer that you could find at any restaurant or whatever, like a Bud Light or Miller Light. I really like it, and I've personally been to Noon Whistle a couple times. One of my actually uh, good friends of mine. Uh, who is a musician, he actually performs at uh, Noon Whistle, their new place in uh, Naperville. So I enjoy it. I I think it's really good. And I I think I'd give it, I'd give it a solid, for for a craft beer that should taste like a a light beer, I'll give it a solid eight. I'm going to give it a nine because normally when people... Uh, give me these smaller um, type lagers and, you know, from these smaller batch companies and they swear by them. I hate them. And they give me a headache like within the first one. <laughs> this is, I could definitely drink more than one and not, you know, hate it. Right. Whereas normally I hate them. No, yeah, it's. And I'm like, how can you drink six of these? I know so many people. This who, is actually this is actually pretty good. Good. I'm I'm glad you like it and Noon Whistle. I I think you're an amazing brewery and you know, I I lo- I love I love your beers, especially this one. So fantastic. All right. Before we get this story started, uh I want to give a huge trigger warning because this is going to be a rough episode. This I don't know how often I'm going to do these kinds of stories, but this one has to do with a mass shooting, and this one is specifically about the 2012 Aurora, Colorado movie theater shooting. Andrew, are you ready? I am ready. All right. And that's is this is a hard episode. Yeah. Hard I episode. uh you know, like I said, I don't know how often I'm going to do these kinds of episodes because of how rough they are and how just absolutely disturbing. Um, so I do want to say that I am going to be going over the gunman gunman's uh, past and his life. If you don't want to hear about it, uh, skip to this timestamp. 20 minutes and 10 seconds. All right, James Holmes is the person we are going to be talking about. James Holmes was born on December 13th, 1987. He was born in San Diego, California. 
Born to father, Robert Holmes, who was a mathematician and a scientist with multiple degrees from Stanford, UCLA, and UC Berkeley, and mother, Arlene Holmes, who was a registered nurse. Holmes was raised in Oak Hills, a community in Monterey County near Castroville, California, where he attended elementary school. At the age of 12, Holmes moved back to San Diego, where he actually began to decline socially. Holmes attended Westview High School, where he played football and ran cross-country. According to James's lawyer, Daniel King, he began to suffer, suffer from mental health issues in middle school when he attempted suicide at just the young age of 12, 11. Jeez, 11 years old. Yeah, it's, you know, that's awful to think about uh, dealing with that, but, you know, mental health issues, definitely a big thing, especially nowadays. But 11 years old, is that's rough. According to Holmes, when he was a child, he was frightened by something called the nail ghost, quote-unquote, the nail ghost, where he would hear hammering on the walls at his home at night. He was sent to a psychiatrist where he was said to be depressed and, quote, obsessed with killing people for over a decade, unquote. So he's definitely going through some stuff. Uh, a, a couple things. Yeah. A couple things, at least. And, you know, I, I don't know uh, more backstory from him, but it's... And this is what they say in, like, the movies and the books. This is exactly how a serial killer... Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I when I was uh, digging up on him, I didn't see anything, you know, like the triad with the uh, uh, pyromaniac and wetting the bed and cruelty to animals. Yeah, he didn't have any any of those kinds of symptoms from what I what I could find in my research. But with mental health issues, it's definitely definitely still a, a slippery slope. Yeah, or sloppy slope, as I people keep repeating to me. <laughs> Despite these issues, Holmes actually graduated high school in 2006 and completed a bachelor's degree at University of California, Riverside in 2010. Holmes graduated with high honors with a GPA of 3.949, which is... Which is just as insane as him trying to commit suicide at 11 years old. Yeah, literally. It's, that's just as insane that he was able to do all that. Yeah, and you know, like maybe he got past his uh uh suicidal ideations and maybe his mental health got better, especially with graduating with that kind of GPA in in college for his uh bachelor's degree. And that's impressive. I mean, uh but you know, he's still the perpetrator and he's I don't I again, it's it's tough to talk about these killers especially when if they either have had a bad life or you know were a smart person or, or whatever i digress holmes decided to per, uh, pursue a graduate degree in neuroscience neuroscience at the university of colorado and moved to aurora colorado once he moved to colorado holmes moved into a one-bedroom apartment in a building with other students involved in health studies at the university Holmes did actually have a digital footprint after uh, after the crimes. The police and the investigators found his digital digital footprint where he had a university email address. He had an old MySpace picture, a dating profile on Match.com where he identified himself as an agnostic, which I wasn't too sure about what agnostic meant, but it is the view or belief that a that the existent, existence of God, of the divine or the supernatural, is unknown or un, is unknown or unknowable. He also had a resume on Monster.com, which is a, a job hiring site like Indeed yeah. or LinkedIn and all that. And he had a profile on Adult Friend Finder. So he's checking a lot of boxes here. Yeah. And then... <clears throat> So you you feel bad for him, but he's clearly intelligent enough to do all these things. Yeah, I mean he he's definitely trying to uh, go about his life and get you know get a job and 
just be a normal person in the uh, 21st century. So, which is, I think, w- what makes mental health so so much of a gray area and a foggy yeah. area. You know. Yeah, because you never know what kind of person has mental health issues when they're just existing and living a regular normal life. I mean, I don't know how normal the adult friend finder is. I've never even heard of that site, but I think that's one of the original viruses of really like Windows ninety five. That's what it sounds <laughs> like to me. Um. Well, here's where it kind of gets in the little grayer area. Uh, Holmes actually also hired sex workers, and he even left reviews of their services on an online message board. Um, okay, so whatever to the hiring sex workers, uh, but leaving the reviews on an online message board is a little strange. Yeah, that's a little sweaty there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's like uh, you may have already had a couple court dates for misdemeanors of some, yeah, right. of some sort. In October of 2011, Holmes began dating a fellow student in his biology class, and they dated for about five months until an encounter in March on St. Patrick's Day where their relationship ended when she felt distant from him following an, an encounter between James and another man who talked to her who talked to his girlfriend during a date. She said that Holmes often made dry humor jokes that made other people feel very uncomfortable, and he even brought up his desire to kill people. After they broke up, they soon got back together, but then a month into the rekindled relationship, Holmes broke up with her for good. And that's interesting, too, that he broke up with her. Yeah. Well, the first time it was uh, she broke up with him, and then... Uh, it was like a few months, or it was like uh six to eight months later is when they got back together. But then in literally a month later, they broke. He broke up with her for good. I don't know why, but that's she didn't like making jokes about killing people. I mean, that's nothing really to joke about. In two thousand and twelve, his academic performance started to decline. He scored poorly on a comprehensive exam in the spring. Holmes then was in the process of withdrawing from the University of Colorado. Early June 2012, Holmes had officially dropped out of school without further explanation. He never gave any explanation of why he dropped out of school. Which should be red flags. Yeah. You know, especially going to school with, first of all, that high of a GPA. Yep. Uh, for, w- after his bachelor degree and then going for his master's or doctorate or whatever and just be like, eh. Yeah, this isn't a kid who's 19 years old and has exactly. just gotten his first semester done in school. And exactly. He's got to be at other. least 21, 22 years old. Yeah. Maybe 23. So a month before he actually dropped out of school, on May 22nd, 2012, James Holmes... James Holmes purchased a Glock 22 pistol at a Gander Mountain store in Aurora, Colorado. Then, six days later, on May 28th, he bought a Remington 870 Express tactical shotgun at a Bass Pro Shop in Denver. On June 7th, just hours after failing his oral exam at school, he, pur- he purchased a Smith & Wesson M&P 15 sport rifle. All three guns he purchased were bought legally, and a background ch- and background checks were performed, and nothing was out of the ordinary. Typical United States, which sucks, gun laws. Yeah, which yeah. I'm not gonna go into that, but yeah, that's yep. those are the facts, and that's what I researched, and that's how it is. Yep. In the four months prior to the shooting, Holmes bought Holmes also bought three thousand rounds of ammo for the pistol. 3,000 rounds for the M&P 15 and 350 shells for the shotgun over the internet. That's which, a lot of ammo. Yeah. That's uh, 6,350 sh- uh, casings for those who can't Again, map. not to get into gun laws, but that's a lot of ammo. Yeah. And I didn't, first of all, I didn't really know you could buy ammunition off the internet. I only know because I've heard so many stories like this where yeah, well, has bought it off the internet. Otherwise, I, I would never believe that you could. 
Yeah. Just a couple clicks of a mouse. And and before I even got into true crime, I never knew that. No. Until after I started, you know, listening to true crime. And I'm just like, you can really do that? Yeah, I thought it was a lot harder to obtain these things. Yeah. Um, but then on July 2nd, he placed an order for a Blackhawk Urban Assault Vest, two magazine holders, and a knife at an online retailer. He also purchased spike strips, which he later admitted he was going to use in case there was a police chase. Again, I would never think that you could buy sp- spike yeah, strips. Yeah, ne- neither could I. And also, if he was involved in a police chase... And I, I know what spike strips look like. I know you, it's like they're like accordion where you have to like pull them out and se- when they when the police set them on the road. Yep. But how would he do that if he was being chased by the police? That it, it, that just doesn't make any sense. He's been watching too many movies. Yeah, literally. Um. Okay. So now, now would be the time to. I'm going to not say him by name anymore. I'll just re- refer to him as the gunman. On July 19th, uh, just hours before the shooting started, the gunman mailed a notebook to his psychiatrist, which detailed his thoughts and plans during the weeks leading up to the massacre. The notebook was found in an undelivered package in the Anschutz Medical Campus mailroom. Immediately prior to the shooting, the gunman called a crisis hotline for mental health with the hopes that someone would talk to him out of committing the crime at the last minute. However, the call was disconnected after just nine seconds. Any idea if it was disconnected by him or by them? I I could only see that it was just disconnected. I didn't see if he just hung up or if call failed or or whatever. It's kind of the same thing. Uh, Who also tried to uh, call a mental health like nowadays, what is it, 988 for the suicide hotline or whatever. But I think it was the Virginia Tech. No. Oh, it was the, uh, it was actually the 1980s McDonald's massacre that happened in uh, San Ysidro, California. I just watched a little documentary on that about a week ago. Yeah, that that one's a rough, rough yes. one. Because he, yeah, but he, that guy also tried to call in. Uh, he called a uh, uh, crisis hotline, but they th- they said call him back in a couple minutes, but he never got a call back. So the day of the shooting, July twentieth, twenty twelve, it was the midnight showing for the Dark Knight Rises, the third and final film in the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy. As Theater 9 of the Century 16 movie theater in Aurora, Colorado was filling up with about 400 people, one of those people being the gunman. He bought a ticket for the midnight showing and entered the theater and sat in the very front row. 20 minutes into the movie, he got up and walked out of the emergency exit door in the theater beside the screen. He used a plastic tablecloth holder to slightly prop open the door parked his car next to the exit door where there wasn't a lot of parking spaces being used. At his car, the gunman changed into his protective clothing and retrieved his weapons. Ten minutes after exiting the door, he came back into it wearing a gas mask, a loaded-bearing vest, a load-bearing vest, a ballistic helmet, bullet-resistant leggings, a bullet-resistant throat protector, a groin protector, and tactical gloves. He also put headphones in and started blasting techno music into his ears. Ready to go to war. Pretty much. And also, like, you put in music blasting into your ears, what, so you don't hear all the screams of the people you're, whose lives you're about to completely fuck up? Oh, absolutely. Oh, my God. And a lot of planning going on here. Oh, yeah. A lot of planning. He bought all this stuff. This is... This isn't a guy who got angry one no. night and went out and did something stupid. No, and I'll actually get into that later because this is 100,000% premeditation. He knew what he was doing. Absolutely. And he, he could have stopped himself. Yep. Many times over. Yeah. And that sucks that whatever happened with the mental health line that he called, he had many opportunities. To call him back. 
to not do this, to call him before, to call him after, to do anything but what he did. Exactly. He did. He made a lot more moves to do it than he did to not do it. 100%. Initially, a few people in the audience considered the man a threat. While others thought he was wearing a costume, some even believed he was just playing a prank. The gunman reportedly threw one canister of tear gas towards the left side of the theater, emitting a gas or a smoke that that partially obscured the vision of the moviegoers. However, they soon started to feel started feeling itchy skin and throats and causing irritation in their eyes. Can you imagine trying to go watch a movie and all of a sudden some somebody comes in and throws a gas canister of any sort? Like I just no. I couldn't imagine. Luckily, I've never been in that situation. Well, neither have I. And I just couldn't imagine. It's it's just such a scary thought. And even here, like, so the moviegoers actually thought this was part of the theater's plan to add special effects during the movies. Um, which, you know, midnight showing for a, a highly anticipated... Yeah, it was a big deal. Yeah, it was, it was the a fi- big final deal. Batman movie in, yep. in the Dark Knight series. However, unfortunately, that was not the case. The gunman started to fire his 12-gauge shotgun, first at the ceiling, then at the audience. He started then to fire his semi-automatic rifle with a 100-round magazine in it, but it eventually malfunctioned. Finally, he started to fire his handgun. All while he's got those beautiful headphones in so he can't hear the massacre and the destruction that he's creating. He shot first into the back of the theater and towards the aisles as people were scrambling to get out of the chaos. He was shooting so much that bullets even passed through the walls and hit three people in the adjacent Theater 8, which was showing the exact same movie. The smoke from the weapons and the tear gas eventually set off the fire alarms, which blared throughout the entire building. So as people, as the alarms were going out, going off, People from every theater in that building were scrambling to get out of the building. The gunman fired 76 shots in the theater, six from the shotgun, 65 from the semi-automatic rifle, and five from the handgun. In how long? I I don't remember how long, okay. I, but I believe it was just within minutes. Yeah, I thought it was just within it was, minutes. I believe it was at least uh, under... 10 minutes. The gunman then proceeded to walk out of the emergency exit door and walk back to his car. All calm and just collected. That's it. Phone calls made to 911 were made immediately after shots started being fired. Police then arrived within 90 seconds. And thank God that we have cell phones nowadays. Yeah, no kidding. 40 years ago, this would have been a big problem. Yeah. There would have been so many more victims. 100%. Um, and also like 90 seconds for a police response is so fast. Well, it goes back, unfortunately, to the days of Columbine. Exactly. And there was that slow response. And then now we get people in there right away. Yeah. That's what you have to do, unfortunately. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we go back, we even go back to, you know, the one that happened, what, two years ago now at, at, uh, Rob Elementary in Uvalde, Texas. Where I don't I I can't remember how long they the, broke every rule that we've learned since Columbine. Yeah, I I don't know how long the police response was. Over ninety minutes. Well, th- I know that, but like, uh, oh, they were in there. They were there within three minutes. Yeah, but the, they didn't uh, actually do it anything. Was over for ninety. Over minutes. an hour. Yeah, which over is, ninety minutes before. Uh, anyway, police found. Three 40 caliber handgun magazines, a shotgun, and a large drum magazine on the floor of the theater. So the gunman actually just dropped his shotgun and just left it on the floor. Because uh, he planned everything up until... Probably it started. It started. Yeah. And then he didn't know what to do after that. Ambulances were actually hindered by all the chaos and congestion in the parking lot. And they were unable to reach the back of the complex where police had been pulling the injured out through the emergency exit door, which I believe was actually the same door. 
Police Sergeant Stephen Redfern was actually the first responding officer on the scene and sent victims to area hospitals in, in squad cars. At about 12.45, police officer Jason Oviet apprehended the gunman behind the movie theater next to his car without resistance. However, because of all, all of the tactical gear he was wearing, the officer had first mistaken him for a police officer. He was described as being calm and quote-unquote disconnected during the arrest. But he wasn't disconnected four minutes beforehand. No, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he was, yeah, I'm going to do this. And and then all of a sudden afterwards, you're there in a daze. And... Yeah, exactly. So this is the part of the story that I remember when this, start, when this actually happened. Uh, two federal officials said that Holmes had dyed his hair red and called himself the Joker, which, for those who don't know, is a villain from Batman. And I remember that, too. Yeah. Although, authorities later declined to confirm this. Three days later, at his first court appearance, the gunman did indeed have reddish-orangish hair. However, later, the Colorado district attorney who prosecuted the gunman said that he never called himself the Joker. The thing I remember from uh, this when all the news broke out, I knew he had the reddish-orangish hair. The fact that he was calling himself the Joker, I still didn't believe because... The Joker doesn't have red, red, orangish hair. Yep, exactly. So, I I immediately thought that was just the media picking up on yeah. something and trying to make a story there. Exactly, really make it pop even more than it already, you know, unfortunately was because of all the victims. Yeah. So that all turned out to be fictitious. So he did not call himself the Joker, and I actually I do remember when in 2019 when the Joker movie came out. There was a lot of controversy with controversy with that movie coming out where people thought there was going to be copycat murders. Yep. And there was going to be another theater shooting. And I, you know, me working at a movie theater for so many years, I was even a little cautious about going to see it. Like people even uh, wanted to have the movie not put into theaters. However, the mo- nothing did happen and the movie was put into theaters without any issues and i see the concern oh so do i you're glorifying the villain yeah and you're making a standalone movie about him yeah it's going to glorify him even exactly exactly um so uh to have this shooting so closely connected to that character yeah exactly even though it's a different you know a, a different person playing it and everything it's still that character yes yes when the gunman was apprehended he actually told police during the interrogation that he actually booby-trapped his apartment with explosive devices. The police evacuated five surrounding buildings around his apartment, uh, which his apartment was actually about five mi- just five miles from the theater. One day after the shooting, officials disarmed an explosive device that was wired to the apartment's front door, allowing allowing a remote-controlled robot to enter and disable the explosives, which this is the one thing that I do not remember about. I only remember about the the shooting and him being caught. I don't remember there being explosives at his apartment, which was just five miles away. Yeah, I don't remember that either. Which is is interesting. Like, he he could have killed so many more people. And I think he planned to. Yeah, obviously. he The apartment held more... Then 30 homemade grenades wild to a control box in the kitchen and filled with at least 30 gallons of gasoline. So that could have been. That's incredible. That's insane. Yeah. That is insane. I don't. Yeah, I don't remember that. First of all, like. How but does that could have been because I don't remember it because of how glorified just the thing of him saying he was the Joker how glorified that was in the media, so I didn't get the entire story of what actually happened. And, right. You know, the aftermath of of the investigation. Yeah, and, you know, like, this was at the time, 2012, I was in high school, and this was the time where I really didn't pay much attention to 2 to crime and just crimes in general. In my late 20s, now listening to all these podcasts and hearing about this, I'm just like, holy shit. Like he he was trying to 
forgive my phrasing, but he was trying to go out with a bang. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's... Uh... Luckily, he's a dumb fuck. Yeah. And luckily... And, like, he was... You know, because you get somebody with... You get somebody with more gusto. Yeah. And they do a lot more damage. Oh, yeah. And do a lot know, more innocent and families like, and a lot more innocent lives. I just, I just wonder, like, why when after the shooting he didn't take off? Like, he just stayed there. Because he didn't think about it afterwards. He only thought. Well, he did he, because he bought the spike strips. Oh, I guess you're, I guess you're correct. I guess, yeah, I guess you're right there. He, he had a little bit of foreshadowing. But I just think that they always think about what to do and how to get to the situation up until they start. Yeah. And then they don't know what to do afterwards. And thank God, because a human shouldn't know what to do once you start a massacre. You know, th- that shouldn't be a thing that we think about. Right. And, you know, and, you know, like he I, I wonder if him staying there was either a sign of remorse or if it was um, him just trying to take in all the damage that he did. So. Yeah, kind of maybe bask in that glory. Just yeah, exactly. take a couple big deep breaths and quote-unquote, admire what you've done. Yeah, which is fucked up. And terrible. Yeah. And destructive. So, neighbors of the gunman reported hearing loud music from the apartment around midnight on the night of the shooting. One resident even went to the gunman's door to tell him she was calling the police. She claimed that the door appeared to be unlocked, but she chose not to open it. Which, kudos to you. Yeah. Because if the bombs were wired to the door, that could have been very, very messy. Very bad. Very bad. A police official said they actually found a Batman mask in his apartment. And then on July 23rd, police finished collecting evidence from the gunman's apartment. Two days after that, residents were actually allowed to return to the four surrounding buildings. And six days later... Residents of the former booby-trapped apartment were allowed to return to their home. And so not only does he affect all the lives of people at the uh, movie theater, but then he affects all the people in his apartment complex, too. Exactly. Exactly. Who, you know, were just there. Who were, you know, in a bad enough situation that they lived next to this psycho. Yeah, exactly. Um, so before we go any further, I'm going to play a little clip from when the uh, shooting started. This is an ABC News special report. To update you on the situation, if you're just now joining us, at least 14 dead, 50 injured. Uh, A lot of those injuries are severe after a lone gunman opens fire in a theater outside of Denver, Colorado in Aurora. The reason I wanted to play that is because the obviously it just happened and the news said that there were 14 people murdered. Um, however, the casualties, there was 12 people were murdered by the gunmen along with 70 people injured from either gunshot wounds or just trying to escape the madness. Yeah, and the pandemonium that happened after that. Exactly. Um, The injured were actually treated at several hospitals, including Children's Hospital of Colorado, Denver Health Medical Center, the Medical Center of Aurora, Parker Adventist Hospital, Rose Medical Center, Swedish Hospital, and University Hospital. Caleb Medley was the last surviving victim actually to, to be discharged from the hospital He had serious brain damage and an injury to his right eye. He had to undergo three brain surgeries, which is just so unbelievably sad. For a kid who's just trying to watch a movie. Exactly. And, you know, like, being someone who used to run a movie theater and someone who loves going to movies, a movie theater experience should be... Someplace you go to relax, have a couple snacks, and just enjoy a new movie coming out. Especially a big blockbuster movie like The Dark Knight Rises. Yep. And, you know, nowadays, 
I, you know, I still go to movies and I, I am, every time I go to a movie, I'm still always cautious to my surroundings. I'll, I'll look around to see if there's any threatening looking people, quote unquote. And it's, it's sad that I or many people even have to deal with that because th- these are things that shouldn't freaking happen, especially in a place that you should just be there to be entertained and relax and just be able to forget about the real world. Exactly. Exactly. And movie theaters, you know, um, I remember episode three came out, uh, star Wars. Yeah. It was a huge deal. Oh yeah. Uh, I stood in line for like an hour to get into it was completely, you know, filled to the max, uh, sold out. And I couldn't imagine Something going on right there during the beginning opening credits yeah, or the first five exactly. minutes. Or, or even the, I couldn't imagine it at all, but, you know, I just couldn't imagine. And I remember the people that I was with, too, and I just couldn't imagine what we would have done. Right, something yeah. Something like, like that happened. And then uh, the pandemonium that would have set in. Obviously, today it's different. We've unfortunately seen this over and over again, so you have a little bit better of an idea of what to do and right. what not to do. And like you said, when you go to the movie theater, you look around a little bit, and, you know, I always know where the exits are. I always know how to get out if I need to, which isn't a thing that you should think about. But, mm-hmm. unfortunately, in this day and age, it is. Yeah, it's, you know, and it's, like, movie theaters, fucking schools, uh, malls, sporting events. I have two kids in school. Yeah. On November 16th, 2012, the Aurora Victim Relief Fund announced that each family of the dead would receive around $220,000, which, okay, fantastic. That's nice, but what, like, I, I didn't really go much into this, but what about the families of the people who were there and have, you know, PTSD from yeah from it, this? That $200,000 goes a long way. Yeah. Until you're dealing with it for thirty years or forty years. Yeah, exactly. You know, and you know, you know, the Aurora Victim Relief Fund. Fantastic that they did that, and fantastic that they get they gave that mo- that amount of money to the victims' families. But again, what what about the surviving victims? Going into the trial of the gunman, his life growing up was not at was not a bad life like some killers' lives. During his court appearance, his lawyers presented to the court that he was a, quote-unquote, cute, happy little boy from a dotting family, a nice kid who was gentle with his dog and babysitter. He did well in school and played basketball and video games. He went to the beach, went on camping trips in the mountains, and went to Disneyland. Whoop-de-doo. He's still a terrible human being. At the least. Yes. It was noted that he was a bit of a prodigy. After finishing up assignments in fifth grade, he and some classmates filled the time writing code and building a website for for his school, in which his teacher called him a, quote, renaissance child. Which, that him writing code could be how he learned how to make bombs or something. But, I mean, I don't know. That very well could be. Yeah. His lawyer said that mental illness was, however, always lurking in the background of his head. It stole his childish joy and ultimately any chance he had to be normal. Which, yes, but he could have gotten help for his mental illnesses. And he clearly figured out a way to get guns. Yeah. So he could have figured out a way to get help. I mean, he, he was never arrested. Did see a psychiatrist, but that didn't turn up any red flags with when he purchased all the weaponry. Which is a red flag. On July 30th, Colorado prosecutors filed a former charge against the gunman, including 24 counts of first-degree murder, 116 counts of attempted first-degree murder, and one count of illegal possession of explosives. Great. That's a lot of... uh, charges but you can still own spike strips 
And like, yeah, I don't understand why he didn't get charges for that, and like charges for the body armor he had, and you know how? Right. Do, how? Why do we need this kind of stuff? Honestly, we don't. I like, especially, especially the spike strips and the body armor. Like, I, I, I just, I don't foresee the reasoning to buy all this protective gear when, when you aren't a law enforcement or in the military. Yeah. Yeah, I've never been in a situation where I was like, man, I wish I had my body armor. Yeah, exactly. On March 27th, 2013, the gunman's lawyer offered a guilty plea in exchange for prosecutors to not seek the death penalty. On April 1st, the prosecution announced that it it, it had declined the offer. Arapahoe County District Attorney George Brochler said, quote, it's my determination and my intention that in this case... For the gunman's justice is death. I don't. I don't know what is a better sentence for these kinds of people. Like, yes, I do wish they are dead, but I also want them to suffer. Yeah. So I think they deserve death, but I think the harder sentence is to live life in prison. Exactly. Especially because you know I've seen a bunch of TikToks, and I think it's hard to make your point about not killing people if you kill the people. Yeah. And, you know, I've seen a bunch of TikToks of people who are, you know, uh, child predators or mass shooters and former inmates will give their opinion on what will be like what these people would go through. And I would say, like, everyone that I've seen would be like, oh, they go through the like first week is hellish for them. Which, rightfully so, because y'all should live a hellish fucking rest of your life. Yep. And even, obviously I know that the death penalties take forever to get put to death. I I could have many episodes on the death penalty anyway, but... Oh yeah, we could talk for another 12 hours here about death penalty. Exactly. The jury selection for this trial started on January 20th, 2015, and ended on April 15th, 2015. The trial began on April 27, 2015. The jury consisted of 19 women and 5 men, two of whom had connections to the Columbine school, high school shooting. Which is insane that they were able to get on a jury. Yeah, I know. Of a mass shooting case. I always see, you know, like jur- jurors like can't ha- I don't know. I I I I'm not well-knowing in the judicial system and how jurors are selected. But anyway, uh, Arapahoe County prosecutors said that the gunman was sane during the shooting and intended on killing all 400 people in that theater. However, while the gunman's lawyers said that he had a psychotic episode during the attack, bull fucking shit. Bullshit. He was 100% sane during the shooting. He would he if he was psychotic, he would not have put his headphones in and put on all that body armor. Oh cool, he had a psychotic episode during the middle. That's great. But the last 3 or 4 weeks leading up to that, he bought a bunch of guns and a bunch of ammunition yep. and a bunch of armor. Yep. So I mean, what was he going through it then or did it just all of a sudden happen and luckily he had a bunch of guns and a bunch of ammo yeah. and a bunch of armor. No, I 100 million percent he was sane it just so happens that the jury found him sane and the judge found him sane whatever on july 16th after the jury deliberated for less than seven hours the gunman was found guilty on all charges you're goddamn right he was thank god we didn't screw that one up yeah right (laughs) Uh, setting, sentencing phase began on July 22nd, and on August 7th, the gunman was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole after jurors failed to re- reach a unanimous decision over sentencing him to death. Any idea what the breakdown was between... I, no. I, 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 I didn't really care much to look into that kind of thing. Yeah. Um... I would just be interested to see how many people. Yeah, and you know, it, it, it very well could be people's beliefs in the death penalty. It could be people's belief that he would suffer more with a life sentence. Yeah. 
but you know. Uh, the gunman's formal sentence was 12 life imprisonment sentences without parole and a maximum of 3,318 additional years on attempted murder and explosive possession convictions. Hallelujah. Rotten prison, you piece of shit. Yep. What a terrible, uh, what a terrible thing, though. Oh, yeah. It's, and you know, I'm, in a little bit, I'm going to go over uh, each victim that lost their lives from this this monster, but I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. I want to first talk about the aftermath of what happened. Uh, Cinemark, who were, were the owners of Century 16 Theater, held an evening of remembrance at the remodeled theater on January 17th, 2013 invited elected officials, victims of the relative victims and relatives of the victims. Wow, they didn't just knock it down. Uh I believe there was call to, but I couldn't obviously they didn't. Yeah, obviously it's, they didn't. it's even still up to today. Yeah, I'm surprised. Yeah. I thought I thought for sure they knocked it down. I I thought they would have. Yeah. I but I'll I'll get into that in in a second um so victims and relatives of the victims after which movies were shown without charge the theater reopened permanently on january 25th theater nine which is where the shooting was at century aurora is now a cinemark xd theater which i believe is like their version of imax yeah instead of numbers theaters are now identified by letters. For example, the Theater 9 is now Theater I, and Theater 8 is now Theater H. God forbid you just not use those ones. Yeah. and I couldn't imagine... Or I just li- couldn't imagine my family member being murdered somewhere. Yeah. And then down the road, there's somebody sitting in a chair having a good time watching a movie. Yeah, and, you yeah. know, I... I I get renaming them after letters, but I feel like they should have done something better with Theater Nine, like Theater. And I'll I'll get into the memorial later, but there was a memorial that was um, uh, erected, and it was called Essentiate, which they could have called the Theater Old Theater Nine, maybe Essentiate. Yeah, that would have been even better. Yeah, yeah. Um. So then. After all this happened, a memorial to the victims of the attack was installed near Aurora Municipal Center, uh, some about 930 yards from the theater. It was dedicated on July 19, 2018, one day before the sixth anniversary of the attack. It consists of a park-like dell with 83 abstract birds, one for each victim. 13 of the birds with translucent wings are on the center column and represents the 12 dead and the unborn child. The memorial titled Essentiate. And I'll get into that unborn child in just a second. I was going to say that's terrible. Yeah. All right. So that's the story of the Aurora, Colorado movie theater shooting. Right now, I'm going to give a little bit of a brief description of each victim that had to that had their lives ended, and I'm going to go from oldest to youngest. Gordon Cowden, age 51. Cowden's family released this statement after his death. Loving father, outdoorsman, and small business owner. Cowden was a true Texas gentleman and loved life and his family. A quick-witted world traveler with a keen sense of humor, he will be remembered for his devotion to his children and for always trying his best to do the right thing, no matter the obstacle. A spokeswoman said the family, quote, wishes to express appreciation for the concern and prayers offered us during this very difficult time. Our hearts go out to everyone that had been harmed by this senseless tragedy. Jesse Childress, age 29. Jesse was fatally shot when he dove in front of a friend of his. His friend Kevin Thau said, quote, 
he would have done that, meaning that Jesse was a kind of person who would, would have dove in front of a bullet. Kind of a friend you yes, want. Exactly. Nearly every day of the week, Jesse Childress would spend his evening playing sports with his friends. Monday would be softball, Tuesday was bowling, and another night was flag football. During the fall, Childress would spend his Sundays cheering for his favorite football team, the Denver Broncos. Childress was a quote-unquote big nerd, says his friend Kevin Thau, in the most endearing way possible because of his love for comic books and superhero movies. Childress also purchased... And that's what he was, a superhero. Exactly. Jump in front of somebody to get shot, that you're a superhero. Exactly. Childress also purchased a new black Scion, which he named the Batmobile. Childress served in the United States Air Force, and Chief Master Sergeant Schwald said at his memorial site that, quote, he was a huge part of our unit, and this is a terrible loss. The person that did this was an incredible coward. I 100% agree. And that's sad. Uh, you survive war, and then you come home, and you get killed like that. Yes, uh, absolutely. Jesse Childress received a full military funeral and burial. As for, you should have. Uh, Rebecca Wingo, age 32. Wingo was leaving behind her former husband and their two daughters. One of their first nights without her, Wingo's family gathered on the patio, swapping memories of a woman who, for 32 years, had been the center of their world, they remembered a woman who always sat first row at church. Robert Wingo, her former husband, said, quote, I've been loving and fighting with her, with that girl, for 15 years. One of her family members said, quote, Her legacy is her friends and family that are inspired by the way she lived and loved. I'd like for her death not to be in vain and maybe in some way help protect some people at some point in the future. John Larimer, age 27. Larimer was from Crystal Lake, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago. Larimer's last act was a heroic act. However, it was not the act of bravery performed in his role as a Navy sailor. It was the act of love and sacrifice performed as a boyfriend while protecting his girlfriend, Kelly Vochtick. Vochtick said to the Chicago Sun-Times, quote, John and I were seated in the middle area. When the violence occurred, John immediately and instinctively covered me and brought me to the ground in order to protect me from any danger. Quote, moments later, John knowingly shielded me from a spray of gunshots. It was then, I believe, John was hit with a bullet that would have very possibly struck me. I feel very strongly that I was saved by John and his ultimate kindness. Larimer joined the United States Navy in 2011 and was a cryptological technician third class. For the past year, he had been stationed at the United States Fleet Cyber Command Station at Buckley Air Force Base in Aurora, Colorado. So he's an active military member who's just trying to have a good weekend. Exactly. His commanding officer, Commander Jeffrey Jakubowski, said, quote, I am incredibly saddened by the loss of Petty Officer John Larimer, he was an outstanding shipmate, a valued member of our Navy team. He will be missed by all who knew him, unquote. Matt McQuinn, age 27. Matt McQuinn died protecting his girlfriend. The Ohio native died on top of his girlfriend, Samantha Yowler. Yowler was actually shot in the knee, but survived as well as her brother, who escaped without injury. McQuinn graduated from Vandalia Butler High School in 2004. He met Yowler while the two were working at a Target in Springfield. Former co-workers of McQuinn said that he was, quote, just a really good person and that she loved having his company, his, quote, company and laughter at work. Alex Sullivan, age 27. During the night of the shooting, Alex Sullivan was celebrating his 27th birthday, which was something he had done since he was a small child. On the day of the shooting, Sullivan posted to his Facebook page saying, quote, hashtag the dark night rises, OMG counting down till it starts, can't wait, going to be the best birthday ever, unquote. 
He went to the show with seven other co-workers, and Sullivan was the only one who was killed. The other seven were injured. Jonathan Blunk, age 26. Blunk was shot to death while protecting his girlfriend, Jansen Young. He knew he had to throw Jansen on the ground and get on top of her to protect her. On the theater floor, he kept on pushing Jansen as she heard shots being fired. She eventually knew that Blunk had stopped pushing, but she didn't think he had been killed. Blunk had two children, a two-year-old boy and a four-year-old girl with his estranged wife, Chantel Blunk, who actually lived in Reno, Nevada. The two worked hard together co-parenting their two kids. They were still very good friends, even after divorce. Chantel told NBC that she was notified of his death by the FBI. John Blunt graduated high school in 2004 and immediately enlisted in the Navy and served aboard the USS Nimitz in San Diego, California. A Jonathan Blunt Memorial Fund was set up for contributions, which was used for the expenses of his funeral and support and to support his daughter and son. Blunk also received a full military funeral and burial. Jessica Gahi. Gahi grew up a big hockey fan, even though she lived in football-crazed Texas. She moved to Colorado to start her career in sports journalism. Weeks before the theater shooting, she walked out of a shopping mall food court just moments before a gunman at the mall shot seven people. Gahi's job was actually working as a waitress. A month before the shooting, many homes were destroyed by fires, and Gahi decided to start collecting donated hockey equipment for kids. Her brother Jordan told Nine News she wanted to help. That's the type of person she was. Alexander C. Teves, age 24. One of Teves' friends, Caitlin, wrote on Twitter saying, quote, one of the best men I ever knew. The world isn't as good a place without him. He was also a fan of the University of Arizona and Spider-Man. Teves earned his master's degree in counseling psychology from the University of Denver. His father said that he blocked his girlfriend from the very bullet that ended up killing him. Teves' aunt told ABC 15 in Phoenix, quote, He always put everybody else ahead of himself, and that was typical of his behavior. He was a hero. I agree. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, so many people say that that's what they'll do, is take a bullet for you. Yeah. But in this situation, there was a bunch of people that took bullets for their significant others. Exactly. Uh, is, it's easy to say you're going to do. It's hard to do it. Yeah, 100%. A Kayla Medic, age 23. Everyone knew her as Kayla. Medic worked as a sandwich artist at Subway. She said on her Facebook page that, quote, I do everything, LOL. Also on her page, she wrote, quote, I'm a simple independent girl who's just trying to get her life together while still having fun. Medic took classes at Community College of Aurora. There was a fund for Michaela called the Michaela Medic Memorial Fund. Alexander J. Boyk, age 18, known to hundreds of people who stood on the Gateway High School football field to remember him as AJ. His family called him a young man with, quote, a warm and loving heart. La Samoa Cross, who happened to be Boyk's girlfriend, surprised everyone saying that he and AJ were secretly engaged. Quote, we were crazy in love. We had big plans. We were going to have everything. We are still going to have everything because he is still here. AJ lives in everyone. Everyone who knew him and loved him. Boyk's plan after high school was to attend Rock Mountain College of Art and Design. Boyk's family said that his dream was to become an art teacher and open up his own studio. A memorial fund was set up for AJ with the money going directly to his family. And now the final victim, the youngest victim, Veronica Moser Sullivan, age six. Veronica was a, quote, vibrant, excitable, blue-eyed, blonde-haired little girl who was bragging five days earlier about learning how to swim. Her great-aunt, Annie Dalton, said, quote, she loved to dress up and read and was, going, and was doing well at school. She was beautiful and innocent. It's a nightmare right now. 
Veronica's mother, Ashley Moser, age 25, was actually shot in the neck during the crime. She was rendered a paraplegic, and she miscarried a week after the attack. So that's the unfortunate 13th victim. Um, so I, real quick, in remembrance of these 12, well, 13, 13 victims, I want to give a brief moment of silence for each victim. So that is the story of the Aurora, Colorado theater shooting. And not to say that any murders uh, easier or harder to deal with than others. Right. Man. And this is a rough one. Yeah. And I, I want to uh, go on go on the limb here, go on the record and say the only reason I told this story is to not glorify the terrible human being piece of shit who did this, but to keep remembering the victims whose lives were tragically taken and to never, ever, ever forget them. Yeah, those people who did nothing wrong but decided to go see a movie. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, that's that's that. And uh, I think that uh, actually may do it for this episode of Cheers to Justice. Andrew? I am so glad that you brought me on here. I had such a good time. Yeah, and... And I found a beer that I can drink that's not Bud Light. <laughs> so that's always a win-win. Well, I'm glad uh, I'm glad you enjoy it. And uh, to Noon Whistle, thanks, y'all. Y'all make good beers. Um, so, yeah, if uh, that's it for me today with cheers to justice if uh you guys want to follow my instagram at cheers to justice you can look at the at some pictures from the stories that i tell and also if you have any case suggestions or if you want to tell me a story from anything personal that has to do with crime or i'll even put out paranormal or haunting you can leave that at cheers to justice at gmail.com. But until next time, Andrew, again, thanks for coming. And again, thank you. I had such a good time here. And I will I will see you guys next time. Cheers. <laughs>